world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. The Heritage Foundation, as uh, you know, if you listen to the show, established their own National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. They uh, set up their own suggested phases and guidelines and making policy recommendations across all COVID-19 related fronts. And now they've released this public service announcement as part of a a campaign for um, healthy, sensible living, specifically targeting minority communities that have been disproportionately impacted. And now I say that, and I want to add a qualifier there that not enough people add. What we're really talking about is poverty, because once you control for household income, the differences between black, white, Latino virtually disappear. But of course, you have a disproportionate share of American blacks and Latinos who are on the lower socioeconomic end of the scale. So you have to deal with reality, too. But that nuance is just lost in the conversation, and it's relevant. My name is Kay James. We're living in some frightening times, and each day brings us more news and information about the coronavirus. It's hard to keep track of it all and what you can do to stay safe. I know past experiences might make you skeptical about what you're hearing from the government and public health officials. Please don't put your own health at risk as a result. Wash your hands often for at least 20 seconds. Avoid contact with people who are sick. Keep six feet between you and others if you have to leave home. Cover your mouth and nose with a cloth face covering or mask if you have to go out. And disinfect frequently touched surfaces. Get medical help immediately if you have any symptoms. I'm confident we can beat COVID-19, but the cure starts with us. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforementioned Kay James, president of the Heritage Foundation. Kay, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, of course. And uh, the uh, impetus for this uh, public service announcement and this awareness campaign. Well, Dan, thank you, first of all, for digging down a little deeper and helping people to understand that this isn't just about race. It's also about income levels, and it's also about population density, because we find that lower-income people who live in rural areas have less of an issue. So it is a very complex issue. But at the Heritage Foundation, we have a very serious problem with the overbearing governors who have actually gone out and gone way beyond their power and issued what has the weight of law with penalties attached to them. And we seriously believe that in our form of government, civil society has a role to play. And so I was sitting in my makeshift office at home and thinking about what in the world could I do. And if those numbers were true, there were a couple of things that I I knew immediately. One, there's a distrust among African-Americans of the medical community for lots of historic reasons. There's some systemic health disparities that go far beyond just COVID-19. But I know that they needed trusted voices to do what was good health practices. 
So I decided it wasn't a government thing to do. It was something that we should do within our communities by giving good advice and counsel and wisdom about how to stay safe. So uh, that's why I decided to do this particular PSA. As the former Secretary of Health in Virginia, I had built up relationships within the community. I knew that I came from a public housing project, and those people admire and respect and look up to me. And if I could save lives by encouraging them to do the right thing, I was happy to do it. Uh, Now, uh, just going back to what you mentioned before about uh, certain governors that are going way beyond their powers and instituting policies that perhaps... uh, do more harm than good, both in terms of life as well as in terms of economic recovery. Do you have any governors in mind that you'd like to point out as the bad examples? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I need to. Um, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, you can look at the results and see who is making progress and who isn't. But yeah, there are some governors out there who we believe have really way overstepped their bounds. One of the questions that's uh, being hotly debated both at the state level and and within their their respective congressional delegations at the federal level is should states like Florida bail out states like New York or Illinois when it comes to more than COVID-19 related expenses, narrowly defined, not like we couldn't make the pension payment we were going to make. So we get the recompense for the COVID-19 expenditures we made and also the opportunity cost for, you know, uh, these unfunded pension and health care liabilities, that little game that they want to play. Where does the Heritage Foundation come down on that matter specifically? Firmly against the bailouts. Why in the world should states who have operated with fiscal responsibility bail out states who want to fund all of their pet projects on the backs of COVID-19 victims. I can't say it strongly enough. Uh, We are working hand in hand with many Republicans, and I can't find a Democrat yet, but if I could, I'd work with them too, who want to be fiscally responsible and who recognize the fact that states who have operated well should not be, the citizens in those states should not have to bear the burden of states like California and New York who have been fiscally irresponsible and now want the rest of the country to pay for it. Any money we spend should be targeted and temporary and really transparent and traced back to really helping COVID-19 victims. As you look around the country and see states in various uh, phases of reopening, is there a state or two that you watch and you say, you know, they've got it just about right? They're following a lot of our recommendations and they're doing other things that make sense? There are all shades of of right in this one. I don't want to pick winners and losers here. I will leave that up to the American people to do. We have some very specific recommendations for what it looks like. And one of the reasons for that is it's a very mixed bag. Some states are doing really well in some areas and really poorly in others. But I think it's going to take a comprehensive approach in order for them to be successful. We want to open quickly and we want to do it safely. So it really, truly is the balanced approach, and most people don't want to hear that. They'd rather go to their collective corners and yell at each other, but we believe that a balanced approach will work. Uh, With respect to some of the guidelines and suggestions that uh, your Recovery Commission has promulgated on the topic of safe reopening, what are some of the steps that you're recommending to advance the safety part of the reopening? 
Well, first of all, it is it is far more complex than most people want to deal with because there are some communities where the threat of COVID-19 is not as severe in others. So the recommendations are going to vary depending on even down to zip code. So some people can open safely with far less restrictions than others. I'm fond of saying we're lots of people say we're all in the same boat. And I would rather say, no, we're all in the same storm, but we're all in different boats. Mm -hmm. Some of us are in luxury liners and some of us are in raft boats. And then there's some communities that have life vests on are in the water and struggling. So don't judge that community based on where you are. So the recommendations across the board will take a look at how many new cases, how many deaths, and it is a complex algorithm to say when one county or one zip code may be open. But when you do, particularly if you're in one of the hot spots, you're going to have to do the social distancing. You're going to have to wash your hands frequently. You're going to have to wear uh, the cloth mask, even though I know how controversial that is. And even though I realize that we are such an independent nature, we don't like anybody telling us what to do. But uh, if it can help a friend, a neighbor, or a relative not become sick, I'm willing to do it. Well, maybe help them maybe psychologically, because uh, as we know from, uh, I don't know, Mark Siegel writing the Wall Street Journal today and and uh, many other doctors, the cloth mask has virtually no impact in terms of transmission. Even Meet the Press's uh, epidemiologist of choice, Osterholm from University of Minnesota, has said that. So, I mean, I understand the, the anxiety piece of it and helping people get over their fear piece of it. But, I mean, we also need to sort of balance that with what we know about uh, science behind it, too, don't we? Of course you do. And the science and what we know is changing every day. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to extend a little grace if they change the recommendations and change what we know. So we grow as we know and we adapt to the new information as we get it. And that's okay. Uh, There's a reason they call this the novel coronavirus because at the beginning, there was a lot we just didn't know. So, you know, yes, they have changed and adapted the recommendations, and they'll continue to do that. And that's okay, because as we learn, uh, we have to adapt. Uh, She is Kay Cole James. She's the president of the Heritage Foundation. Kay James, thanks, as always, for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and building on our conversation with Kay James from the Heritage Foundation about all the component parts to a reopening around the country. That certainly includes places of worship for the faithful. And uh, I want to work backwards here because normally we're talking about uh, how different courts and different states and even at the federal level are treating different cases differently, depending on the specific facts and the nature of the executive order in force in a particular state. We're talking about that. Uh, We're talking about uh, how local politicians are interfacing with the church. So we're talking about politicians. We're talking about the courts. It's state specific, generally speaking. What about the difference in the reaction from different communities of faith? For example, compare the evangelicals to Catholics like myself to, say, Reformed Jews 
the most of the litigation has been driven by evangelical Christians to the exclusion of other communities of faith. Why? To help us answer that question, we're pleased to be joined by Mark Movsesian. He is the Frederick Whitney Professor and Co-Director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's University Law School. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So why is that? You tackle this in your piece that I read at uh, lawandliberty.org about uh, evangelicals are the moving community of faith when it comes to litigating for their First Amendment religious liberties to the exclusion, generally speaking, of all other communities of faith. Yeah, that's right, Dan. It's a really striking thing. Uh, You know, there have been now several cases across the country in which houses of worship have challenged local orders requiring them to stop holding worship services. And virtually all of the cases are being brought by evangelical congregations. They're not being brought by Catholic Christians or Orthodox Christians or other religious communities. I'm aware of one. There's one non-evangelical church. This is in New Jersey. It's a it's an irregular Catholic church, a Catholic traditionalist. One of their parishes brought such an action. But by and large, it's evangelicals, which is really very striking. And the reason it's striking is that if you think about worship, it should be Catholics and Orthodox Christians uh, should be the ones complaining because, you know, their worship, Catholic worship, Orthodox worship, I'm an Orthodox Christian myself. The centerpiece of worship is the Eucharist. Yeah, communion. Yes, it's distributing communion. And that you simply cannot do at home. It's impossible to receive communion online. Whereas evangelical churches, their worship is much less focused on that. It's much more about the sermon. And you can always do a sermon online. So it's interesting. There's a kind of paradox here that the more liturgical churches for whom corporate worship is sort of more essential, they're not the ones who are complaining so much. It's more the evangelical Christians. And that's a striking fact. And you suggest that this may have something to do with the disposition of the congregants and the adherence to the various faiths when it comes to politics and power in a secular sense. Yeah, I think it's for, that's one of the reasons. I think it's a few reasons. So one is, I think that the evangelical churches tend not to be hierarchical in the way that Catholic churches or Orthodox churches are, you know, and in those Christian traditions, parishes are accustomed to following the directive of the bishop. And so far in this country anyway, the Catholic bishops and Orthodox bishops have gone along with these orders. Now, that may not go on forever. That may change. I think it's changing in some other European countries where the bishops were initially willing to go along and now they're not. But one reason is the hierarchy. You know, evangelicals don't have that. They're more independent, which means independent congregations can decide for themselves how to react to these closings. That's number one. Number two, it might have something to do with ideas about authority generally. You know, evangelicals are the, are the heirs of the free church tradition, and they're much less accustomed to deferring to ecclesiastical authorities, and that probably spills over also to political authorities. And finally, maybe it's what you say, Dan. Maybe there's a political element here. White evangelicals at least have been very strongly supportive of this president, and they may be somewhat skeptical about bureaucrats. And there's another thing, too, we have to be fair about this, that evangelical Christians often see themselves as unfairly targeted by bureaucrats in that they are sometimes correct. And so they might have more of a kind of skeptical attitude when bureaucrats tell them you've got to shut down while the liquor store around the corner can stay open. Yeah. And I can tell you as a Catholic, the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops is not exactly a conservative debating society. So um, I think there is definitely (laughs) something there. You, You just mentioned something I wanted to get to as well. This is important just in terms of people understanding how could a court hold one thing in Oregon and another thing in California? 
Um, you mm-hmm. uh, reference in your piece this uh, seminal Supreme Court case in 1990, which sort of establishes the standard of analysis for uh, regulating church activities. And I just wanted you to explain that. Yeah, so that you're talking about a case called Employment Division versus Smith, which was decided in 1990, written by Justice Scalia, by one of the great conservative justices, actually. And Smith says that when it comes to the question of religious exemptions, that is, can a religious person say, I can't comply with this law because my religious convictions forbid me from doing so? When it comes to that, there's basically two questions you ask. The first question is, well, is the law targeted at religion, the law target religion for disfavored treatment? You know, is there some hostility there or religious groups being treated differently? That's the first question. If the answer is no, if the answer is this is not targeted, this is generally applicable, then there's no right to a religious exemption. If it is targeted, then you move to something called a compelling interest test. And that means the court has to balance the burden that is placed on religion against the benefit of the public policy. So the court will say, well, does the important goal the state is trying to reach, does that outweigh the burden on religious exercise? Those are the two questions. And both of those questions leave a lot of discretion to individual judges. Mm. So for the first one, for example, is the law generally applicable? Well, a judge could look at it and say, you know something, um, they're, they're stopping church services, but they're allowing liquor stores to open and retail stores and hardware stores to open and lawyers' offices to open. So that looks to me like this law doesn't generally apply because they're treating the same things differently. And that's what some federal judges have said. On the other hand, a judge could look at it and say, well, you know, you're not comparing the same things. You shouldn't compare churches to liquor stores. You should compare churches to movie theaters. And that's the comparison you should be making. And if that's the case, movie theaters and churches are both being closed down. So this is general. And that's what the Seventh Circuit, which is, you know, you're in Chicago. The Seventh Circuit is the federal court of appeals that covers Chicago, Illinois and Wisconsin, um, and they just said, I think a few days ago, that this, the, the, the Illinois order from Governor Pritzker was generally applicable because it applied to churches and movie theaters the same way. And so that's the end of the case. Even if you get past that and you get to the second question, how do you balance the burden on religion versus the, the societal goal of ending the epidemic? Judges differ on that, too. Now, we'd all agree that ending the epidemic is important. That's the serious government interest. But what about the burden on religion? Well, some judges have said, you know, it's not that big a burden on religion because after all, you can always watch at home. You can always go online and see the religious service at home. So it's really not much of a burden. Uh, To my mind, that's incorrect. I mean, that's a misunderstanding of what religion is. Religion involves some sort of gathering with other people. But if, if a judge just doesn't see it that way, then a judge is likely to discount the problems that religious believers face. And because it's a balancing test, it's kind of up to the discretion of the judge, you know, and that's why you have these different court opinions. And so these uh, matters will continue uh, to be litigated as long as the lockdown orders are in place in the various states. He is Professor Mark Movsesian. He is the Frederick A. Whitney professor and co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's University Law School. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. On Sunday night, Jerome Powell sat down with Scott Pelley 60 Minutes for an extended interview, at which point he said that uh, there's still a lot of tools in the Fed's toolbox, I, I'd say, after uh, $6 trillion in enhanced liquidity from Congress, I would think there would still be a lot of tools left. Uh, he also uh, offered this prediction on the U.S. recovery. This is a time of of great suffering and difficulty, and it's come on us so quickly and with such force that you, you really can't put into words uh, the, the pain people are feeling and the uncertainty they're realizing. And it's going to take a while for us to get back, but I, I would just say this, in the long run, and even in the medium run, you wouldn't want to bet against the American economy. This economy will recover. It may take a while. It may take a period of time. It could stretch through the end of next year. We really don't know. Can there be a recovery without a reasonably effective vaccine? Assuming there's not a second wave of, uh, of, uh, of the coronavirus, I think you'll see the economy recover steadily through the second half of this year. For the economy to fully recover, People will have to be fully confident, and that, that may have to await the arrival of, of, of a vaccine. Well, and there was some good news on the vaccine front yesterday, which sent the market uh, roaring. Uh, Moderna's mRNA vaccine produced good results in its in sort of early trials. The first phase of clinical trial examining whether the vaccine is safe and causes an immune response began in mid-March. Forty-five healthy volunteers aged 18 to 55 received varying doses. Moderna reported that all participants who had been evaluated after receiving two doses developed antibody levels at or above levels of those seen in patients who have recovered from the virus, which suggests the vaccine could be effective. Also, none of the participants experienced severe side effects. So that's positive news, but we're still a long way from home. And there seems to be, to my way of thinking, undue hope but being laid at the table of a vaccine in terms of returning to the sort of normalcy that will allow the American economy to grow again. 16% of vaccines are approved, period, historically. The timeline for vaccines is usually in the years, if not decades, if ever. The lack of a vaccine ever being developed for a human coronavirus is notable, as is the fact that we've never developed a virus for anything on the warp speed timeline that people are talking about end of this year, beginning of next year. Now, the resources being devoted to this are unprecedented as well, uh, both in terms of mind share and money. So, you know, you can be hopeful and realistic at the same time. They're not antonyms. But it just seems that, like, particularly when you talk about governors and their phasing, that you can't uh, have any sort of gathering of more than 10 people until there's a vaccine. That's that is not presenting an opportunity for America to recover. Not on even the timeline that Fed Chairman Powell is talking about. And he's talking about the end of next year, maybe. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jim Urio, CNBC contributor and restaurateur. Jim, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. What about uh, the comments that uh, Jerome Powell had over the weekend, including not just his recovery projections in terms of horizon, but also what he's saying about uh, the uh, tools that the Fed still has to prop things up. Well, let's let's go after those first, which I, I think that that 
what we've seen as far as fiscal policy and monetary policy combined here is absolutely staggering. I think it gets to numbers that you know, we can't even comprehend those numbers. I actually believe that they are appropriate in times like this, but the thing that worries me the most is that they do things like this also when they're not appropriate and they have the tendency to stay around long after this is over. And I think that the market right now, you know, silver's up 40% since the beginning of March. Gold's higher too. What this is telling me is a very clear sign is that the world is beginning to question fiat currencies, particularly the dollars. And it doesn't show up when you look at the dollar index because the dollar index is measured against the euro, the yen, the Swiss, British pound, which all are other currencies that are flawed and their central banks are adding too much liquidity at this time as well. So this is, in my opinion, his, um, you know, just opening up the person saying, what do you need to get through this is the right thing to do now. But the snake will be made in a couple months when it's time to pull back and they won't do that because that's when they always become very, very fearful. The things you said about the, the vaccine, that's it's wonderfully promising. And I liked the fact that the stock market welcomed that yesterday. But we are at a point now where we need a vaccine yesterday. Each week that passes, we are doing greater and greater devastation to the economy. And in my mind, I put it, and this is, you know, there's no exact science to this at all. If we had closed down for a week or three weeks, that mean it would take six months to recover. But every week that we're closed now, the devastation will probably tack on another three to six months of whatever the recovery is going to look like as we go. It's great to hear that there's a vaccine. From an economic standpoint, it's not particularly relevant unless it's coming around the corner tomorrow. When we come back with CNBC's Jim Urio, I want to go back to what uh, Jay Powell said regarding his tools, the tools at his disposal, and what those tools are intended to fix. More with uh, Jim Urio right after that. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with CNBC contributor Jim Urio, and I want to uh, get back to the uh, macro picture here. Uh, when Powell says tools in the Fed's toolbox, I mean, it was what you're really saying, look, we're going to prop up the market because what we're really trying to do is protect the investor class. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that because, you know, that's where the money is. And if uh, they uh, take a dive, then the, the death spiral increases in pace. But, it, but is that effectively what he's saying? Yeah, I think it is. And I hate to even say that because I like Jay Powell. I think he does a good job. But I can show you, you know, historically over the last few years – and how decidedly Fed rhetoric changes in the face of declining at risk asset prices, meaning when the stock market goes down, all of a sudden they come out and say, no, 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 we're here for you. So for, for someone to draw a conclusion that they're not um, caring a lot about propping up the stock market, I think is, it's easy to, to combat that because it's just it's the fact that, yes, they're doing that. And, and then you can change the, like you said, change the debate into, well, is that ultimately a good thing? I think probably it is. Um, but, you know, it goes back to this whole, you know, when you think of the investor class and this whole notion that we're all in this together, because I can assure you we are not all in this together. There's a lot of people who don't know how to feed their kids. And the investor class is doing just fine, uh, thanks to uh, Jerome Powell propping up the stock market. Uh, I wanted uh, you to hear from a, another economist, just in terms of you know another colleague, a professional, a market analyst that um, has a, perhaps a different view on the reopening and the pace of it. 
that would be um, I am Sam actor Sean Penn. The motto that I go by, it's the same thing I think of just as a citizen with my own opinions so that I'll, I'll not register right this moment. But, but again, when it comes to opening economies, slow is, is smooth, smooth is fast, and blood is slippery. Uh, and we don't want to get a, get a finger uh, slipping on a hot trigger. Mm-hmm. I know you uh, are schooled in a lot of uh, different uh, economic philosophies. Could you tell me, uh, per penonomics, where uh, the supply and demand curves intersect in slow is smooth, smooth is fast, and blood is slippery? What in the world is he talking about? <laughs> I'm just going to, and far be it from me to question you know, Sean Penn's uh, economic acumen. So I, I mean, you know, I clearly were out on a limb here. Please I, remember, you know, remember, this was a top economic advisor to Hugo Chavez. So just consider that <laughs> when you're hearing his advice and counsel for Chicago. Of course, of course. It, it, what's sad, though, here is that, you know, obviously a lot of people listen to him. A lot of people, I mean, you get the, you get the government that you deserve, I guess, and people voted in these people um, to, to political offices, and they're getting Sean Penn as their advisor. So, I mean, is that frustrating to people like us? It, it, of course it should be. But when he starts, to, you know, slow and caution, slow and caution, okay, we could be slow and caution and crater the economy and send us into the next Venezuelan-like depression. Um, a lot of people die when the ship hits the rocks from an economic standpoint. So all you're doing here is trading one for the other. But, you know, the, the comedy of Sean Penn getting up there and lecturing us, you know, what, what are we even supposed to do with that? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure either. I was hoping you'd know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not your guy for that, right. I liked him better as Spicoli, though. If he would have done it in character, I think that I would have listened to him more. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, so you have very different approaches being taken by different states, although most are moving much more quickly than, say, Illinois is to reopening. Can you have a, 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 a booming Texas and a booming Florida and a booming southwestern part of the United States and a stagnant New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and Illinois and California and still have a... Uh, a optimistic economic outlook for the country? There's absolutely no. You know, the, everything operates on you know, thin margins, leverage, and fragility as an economy kind of moves into fairly late stages like we were before. If you take out, you know, four of the biggest producing states, there is absolutely no way that we can have a, a you know, a large-scale boom or whatever you'd call it, missing those states. So that's even a silly concept to consider. So the answer to that is an absolute no. But the problem with that reality is then that encourages ultimately uh, policymakers and appropriators to figure out a way to prop up New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, Illinois, California when it comes to their widely unfinanceable, unfunded liabilities. Well, we've talked about that in the past and i don't even blame a politician for looking at a situation as it comes to them and thinking in terms of it is you know how, how can i do my job one but how can this affect me and how can it affect me positively i think that it's just a normal human characteristic but for someone like like um uh, what's his name jb pritzker like when he i've heard him three times talk about how illinois finances were somewhere anywhere between okay and good mm-hmm. prior to the coronavirus now we know this that's that's absurd that's ridiculous but then you realize that the 
uh, the creating of the economy in Illinois in some ways could affect him positively if he continues to lobby for a bailout and just keeps pointing at the rubble saying, gosh, see what coronavirus and coronavirus alone did to our economy. Nothing else, but just coronavirus. And that, to me, that's, that's awful convenient, and it creates kind of um, – you know, misaligned incentives. And I, again, I'm not accusing anyone of anyone, at least not on this phone call. But, but to see that, you know, so look at November and say, well, gosh, if, if someone who's more sympathetic to my cause gets in office, perhaps we get a bailout. I, I think these are normal thoughts. Acting on them is disgraceful, of course. Well, and, and, and just, I mean, Gavin Newsom is doing the same thing in California. He's on Tapper over the weekend saying, you know, we were doing well. Um, I, we, I paid down nine billion dollars in unfunded liabilities last year. The state of California has one point five trillion dollars in unfunded liabilities. His nine billion dollars is 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 pocket lint. I, I mean, these guys are so they're they're doing exactly what you're saying. And uh, it's going to be up to, I guess, the steadfastness of, of Mitch McConnell to prevent them from getting a windfall that goes well beyond any damage that COVID-19 did. That wasn't but self-inflicted. There's, about, but there's, there, there's something that's even more frustrating, though, too, is that is that there's a large amount of people who sit there and listen to those ridiculous words and say, yeah, that checks out. And, and yeah. that doesn't check out. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just you're being lied to. He is Jim Urio, CNBC contributor and restaurateur. Jim? Uriel, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, even in uh, the lockdown states, I know since I live in one called Illinois, there are common sense officials at the local level, if not the state level, that uh, are working in concert with the community they serve. Let me give you an example of this. At uh, the Attilus Gym in Belmar, New Jersey, also a shutdown state, Governor Phil Murphy there, New Jersey and New York, the worst outbreaks, and yet the two governors that get the highest marks from the press. It's just remarkable. Anyway, uh, police called to Attilus Gym because the gym was going to open and people were going to go in and work out, and that's a violation of the governor's order. And this is what transpired when the police arrived and addressed the crowd. We are and we're only here for everybody's safety today. We plan for the worst, hope for the best, and it seems like that's what we have out here today. Normally, you are all in violation of the executive order. On that note, on that note, have a good day, everybody. Be safe. We're here to mention that you're in violation of the executive order. On that note, everybody be safe and have a good day. Yeah. Consent of the governed. This concept, um, police understanding the precarious position they've been put in 
by the governor of their state when it comes to people who want to resume something approximating their pre-COVID-19 lives. And wait till next hour when we talk to uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya in Stanford and I pick up the conversation we started yesterday about how this national lockdown strategy was birthed some 14 years ago uh, in really during the George W. Bush administration. It's just the most unbelievable thing. Uh, As we were talking about religious liberty earlier this hour with St. John's Law School professor uh, Movazian, perfect segue to this, a reminder to check out Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. It's a documentary I've been telling you about for the last couple of weeks, presenting convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. The uh, work of investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel and throughout the world, to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories, like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? The results of his investigation are monumental. Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, at home with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. The other movies in the series, there's three of them. Exodus mentioned, The Moses Controversy, and The Red Sea Miracle. Uh, included in The Exodus is a panel discussion moderated by Gretchen Carlson, featuring uh Friends of the show, Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, and Graham Lotz. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and other movies in the series. To do so, go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And, um, we're soon to be joined by Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who's a uh, medical professor, professor of medicine at Stanford University. He's also an economist. It's a nice intersection. About uh, six weeks or so, he gave uh, an interview to uh, Peter Robinson in his excellent uh, interview series, Uncommon Knowledge, and at which point they were discussing the lockdown and bus policies. I think six weeks ago, which is, seems like about six lifetimes ago, this is what uh, Dr. Bhattacharya had to say. So I'm a little bit astounded maybe, unless you tell me I shouldn't be, that they've shut down the economy without knowing quite what they're doing. I mean, I, I think... Um, am I... Am I, no, I? I'm astounded as well. Uh, you are. Because here's the thing. I think that there is a lot of disagreement within the scientific community about what exactly what that number is. People of goodwill. Yes. Intelligent um, people. So there's there's very bright people friends of mine who I, I respect very highly that disagree very strongly with me about what, what that number is. They don't know it and I don't know it. We should be honest about that. Uh, and we should be honest with, about that with people who, who make these policy decisions when we're making them. Uh, it, in a sense, like people plug the, the worst case into, those, into their models. They project forward and say two to four million deaths. Newspapers pick up the two to four million deaths. Politicians have to respond. Um, and the scientific basis for that projection is, is completely 
there's there isn't there there's no study underlying that scientific projection in the sense of that number that denominator of that number doesn't exist we don't know right so that number they kept referring to as you heard later in the exchange is with respect to the the lethality rate um you can understand why dr bacharya and others were surprised by the um uh, sort of blind leap into lockdown uh, even more so when you understand the history. I mean, we talked about this yesterday in the New York Post piece by Eric Spitznagel comparing 1969 to 2020, the uh, uh, Hong Kong flu of 69 and the response to the COVID-19 of 2020 and the response. Well, Jeffrey Tucker was quoted in that piece. Jeffrey Tucker, who's an adjunct scholar with the Mackinac Center for Public Policy and an Acton Institute associate. Uh, he uh, developed a little bit more of the backstory here. And and you just you cannot believe that we are all um, a part of this grand social policy experiment, much like Schrodinger's cat was part of a social policy experiment. Uh, the lockdown policy, as we discussed yesterday, uh, the genesis of it, a high school research project pursued by the daughter of a scientist at Sandia National Laboratories, who himself was not an infectious disease expert. 14-year-old Laura Glass, and this is not being critical of her, it's just, it's just remarkable. She devised a computer simulation in 2006 that showed how people, family members, coworkers, students, school people, and social situations interact. What she discovered was that school kids come into contact with about 140 people a day, more than any other group. Based on that finding, her program showed that in a hypothetical town of 10,000 people, 5,000 people would be infected during a pandemic if no measures were taken, but only 500 would be, would be infected, one-tenth, if the schools were closed. And so she uh, produced this paper, uh, Targeted Social Distancing Designs for Pandemic Influenza, that set out a model of forced separation and, uh, you know, applied it in a simulation going back to the influenza outbreak of 1957. And this ultimately became the approach that was adopted by two influential scientists in the George W. Bush administration, Richard Hatchett and Carter Mecker, um, Mecker, Department of Veterans Affairs physician, Hatchett, an oncologist turned White House advisor, uh, part of the game planning that they did under President uh, George W. Bush in consultation and, um, frankly, argumentation with other medical professionals who were actually experts in the area of infectious disease. And listen to, so they were a proponent of the lockdown and social distancing. Never been tried. Uh, but the three professors from Johns Hopkins, infectious disease specialists, epidemiologists, along with D.A. Henderson, who uh, is a uh, also a infectious disease expert argued against the takeaway from this game planning being a lockdown and social distancing uh, in the paper, their views, Henderson and the three professors from Johns Hopkins, infectious disease experts, all of them. There are no historical observations or scientific studies that support confinement by quarantine of groups of possibly infected people for extended periods in order to slow the spread of influenza. It is difficult to identify circumstances in the past half century when large-scale quarantine has been effectively used in the control of any disease. The negative consequences of large-scale quarantine are so extreme 
forced confinement of sick people with the well, complete restriction of movement of large populations, difficulty in getting critical supplies, medicines, and food to people inside the quarantine zone, that this mitigation measure should be eliminated from serious consideration. They also suggest that the proposal raises all sorts of ethical questions, uninfected people being placed at risk of infection from sick household members. Uh, The uh, final remarkable conclusion, as Jeffrey Tucker recounts, from these per, these experts, experience has shown that communities faced with epidemics or other adverse events respond best and with the least anxiety when the normal social functioning of the community is least disrupted. Strong political and public health leadership to provide reassurance and to ensure that needed medical care services are provided are critical elements. If either is seen to be less than optimal, a manageable epidemic could move toward catastrophe. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University, research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research, senior fellow at Stanford's Institute for Economic Policy Research, and at the Stanford Freeman uh, Spogli Institute. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I I mean, I just cannot get over the genesis of this uh, national policy that was adopted by this administration at the advice and counsel of uh, doctors Fauci and Burks and others. And, uh, and, and, you know, and we're still grappling with on a state by state basis. I mean, it's, it's really hard to go back in time and, and uh, say whether it was, I mean, I, I, frankly, I'm not, I don't have a ton of interest in, in pointing fingers now. Um, I mean, I think that uh, what I said then, I still, think was true at the time. And I mean, it certainly was true at the time, but they didn't know uh, the, the advice they were getting, they meaning the, the folks who were making these decisions, the advice they were getting from places like model and other, other projection models um, uh, was, was that there was going to be this alarming, alarming uh, death toll, uh, you know, 2 million plus people in the U S um, and uh, now the problem with those models was that it was not based on any any empirical data whatsoever regarding the extent of the infection. They just didn't have that number. Uh, I mean, if if I uh, if I had to go back in time, I, I guess what I suggest is why don't we work to get that number and then start to make decisions rather than rather than the other way around. Well, but, I think, um, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm not a politician. Yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate that, but but also it's it's just the the lack of. Um... Uh, sort of uh, measuring twice and cutting once. Uh, I mean, the the idea, you know, we're we're phasing out. I mean, there is nobody suggesting, hey, maybe we should phase in. Let's let's understand. Let's go to what we've done before, what we know works, like quarantining sick people, and then let's uh, gather, as you're suggesting, do more of the testing, uh, the serological testing, and and all of the testing that's required. Try to model this with real world data. Try and get a better handle on this before we go headlong into a policy that we know is going to ultimately be uh, lives versus lives. And we don't know, it, you know, on which side of that, uh, uh, that, that, that trade-off we're going to emerge. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the, that's the problem, right? So people viewed the lockdown as the safe approach, but it was never the safe approach. Uh, there is no safe approach in this, in this setting. Uh, if the lockdowns themselves will have absolutely catastrophic consequences for health for people around the world, it's certainly in the U.S., but uh, even more so for poor people in every single poor country on Earth. And um, I think those those considerations should have also entered uh, some discussions 
But um, but I think people were so focused and, and I mean, to some extent scared by the the uh, the prospect of this this this, uh, this disease, this COVID nineteen disease, that uh, a, a lot of the the the, co- the 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 costs of the lockdown weren't weren't really seriously considered. And I, I don't I mean it's again it's not just one government; it's basically every government around the world. Yeah. On the basis of of uh, advice, so it's, I mean it's hard to like as I say it's hard to go back and point fingers. I, I mean, I don't know what I would have done if I was a politician. I mean, I don't envy them. When we come back with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, I want to talk about the erasing and redrawing of lines, the uh, flying by the seat of our pants, uh, changing policies on a daily, if not a hourly basis, uh, despite what we understand about the science supporting some of these decisions. More with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya right up here. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, and I want to go back to the lockdowns. And uh, on the one hand, you've got infectious disease experts from some of the most prominent universities in the world. On the other hand, you have the basis of the the policy starting with a 14-year-old's research project that gets picked up by some advisors, doctors admittedly, but advisors in your administration. And I mean, it's just caution to the wind. And so now we're in a position where even Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, um, he he noted, uh, tweeted out the other day, look, he's looking at 14-year track, 14-day, excuse me, 14-day tracks of testing going up while positivity rate is going down. And he's encouraged by that. We're sort of making it up as we go along now after we've erased the line that we needed to cross and redrawn it and it's redrawn differently in different states. And and these arguments continue against the backdrop of uh, the transfer of wealth from the federal governments to state and local governments or to the private sector. I mean, it just is so ill considered that um, you can understand why people can't make heads or tails of it all. No, I completely understand. I'm very sympathetic to that. I mean, there's certain things I think we probably could have known her then, and we certainly know now, right? So that we know who's most vulnerable. It's very, very clear that if you're in a nursing home um, and you're older, you're at the highest risk. We could we could have worked better to protect them, the folks in the nursing homes and older older populations. And that's still, still true today. We should certainly continue to do that. I mean, that they're still at risk. There, there are things that we, we absolutely should be doing. The benefits of this policy of a lockdown are in to slow the spread of the disease. The disease. I, I believe that's true. The cost we, we are already seeing, and we're going to start to pay over a long, long period of time. In a sense, for instance, like take hospital systems you mentioned. If hospital systems start to go bankrupt as a result of the lockdowns, when we lift up the lockdown policy, and if, if it's right that the lockdowns slow the spread, then lifting up may increase the spread, at least when you know, sort of weather permitting or whatever. At that point, we'd be less well-equipped to deal with it if hospital systems are gone or in financial trouble. Yeah, and then the number, I mean, the number I've seen on this, at least as a, a, a recent count, 250-plus hospitals have furloughed workers. <laughs> I mean, so. yeah, no, I, it's, I mean, what the principle here is, if our country is wealthier, we'll be better able to equipped to deal with the consequences if there is a second wave or if the crisis continues. Be, being poor as a country as a, as a result of the lockdowns will make us less able to deal with all of those issues that are going to continue. That's why I say the lockdown is not a safe policy. There's severe risk of the lockdown itself. Neither policy is safe. I think a lot of the thinking is what was and is that while we can just stay safe 
at home. It's a safe thing to do. We're going to protect lives by doing this. And as you said earlier, it's not just that you don't protect lives by doing it. You just change which lives are at risk. You know, right, like the 40% of people making under $40,000 a year that don't have jobs anymore. Yeah, it's just, it's poor. I think poor people everywhere in the United States, in a, basically every country on earth, is going to be hurt by this uh, the, the global economic depression that we're that we're in. I think we're already in, and we're li- likely to continue to be in. You wrote about that, and I want to touch upon it because we've touched upon it this show. We uh, enlisted the uh, observations of David Beasley, who's the ED of the World Food Program, and he's talking about uh, because of uh, shutdowns and problems with border and problems with supply webs and problems with funding. He's talking about it. You know, these shutdowns persisting the world over. You could be talking about. Uh, Tens of millions of people, including tens of millions of children, starving to death. And you've written about this as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the numbers are just absolutely shocking. The likelihood of very poor people starving around the world. There's also the fact that many diseases that we, we've worked very hard to control because of the COVID lockdowns, we've stopped trying to, uh, like, for instance, vaccination campaigns for diseases like polio, those kind of diseases where we've made a lot of progress. Slow down. We're likely to see the resurgence of diseases that we thought we'd started to make a lot of progress against. Tuberculosis treatments in India, for instance, have basically been curtailed very substantially. We're likely to see a resurgence of tuberculosis around the world. It's not like the world's isolated in that sense. Those diseases don't just stay in one country. If by focusing just on COVID, we may have made progress against COVID, but we're going to go backward on a, a whole host of other diseases that we really can't afford to go backward on. Um, and the, the hedge here has been to, uh, you know, flatten the curve buys us time in terms of hospital capacity, but also in terms of uh, identifying and developing an uh, antiviral therapy uh, and ultimately a vaccine. With respect to the antiviral therapy and vaccine, you know, everybody's sort of saying, hey, look, if this is something that comes in uh, the next three to six months, then it will have been worth it. And if it isn't, then maybe it won't. People trying to hedge. But it seems to me you have to sort of game plan and make decisions based on based on the most likely scenario. And is it not true that the most likely scenario is that you will not have a vaccine in, in the next three to six months, regardless of the positive results early on in that Moderna vaccine, potential vaccine, maybe not even the next three to six years or ever? I mean, it's hard to make vaccines. We don't have one for HIV. We don't have one for any coronavirus that I'm aware of, at least in human populations. I mean, I think uh, it's a gamble. I mean, in a sense, if the idea is let's wait until we get a vaccine, we basically paid an enormous, think about it as an insurance policy, we paid an enormous premium on this insurance policy, you know, the, the cost we just talked about in, in lives, um, diseases that are going to come back. And, and if, if the gamble pays off, well, okay, we've got this the vaccine, that's good, that's certainly something to celebrate, I'll celebrate it, I'll, I'll be first in line if it, if it works. Actually, I'll put my kids first in line if it works. <laughs> yes. uh, Actually, I put my elderly mom first in line if it works. At the same time, yep, you know, was the premium worth it? Was the payment to, ha- to, uh, to, uh, to get the vaccine worth it? It's not just the cost of the research. It's the cost of the lockdowns that, um, that, that we paid in order to wait until the vaccine. If that's the policy, it's an enormously expensive one, and again, in lives. And uh, just on a so a prospectively going forward, is it your view uh, where um, all the conversation is focused on continued uh, testing and ramping up testing as and contact tracing, both uh, both the testing for positivity as well as the antibody testing combined with contact tracing? That's where resources should be focused. I mean, I think uh, it should be focused on populations that are at risk or, uh, you 
I mean, I think, so for instance, like in nursing homes, I absolutely believe that uh, we should make sure that uh, people living in nursing homes and older populations are vulnerable should not be exposed to the coronavirus. And so testing resources focused on making sure that happens in whatever systematic way that could be implemented would be a really, really good idea. Um, is it a good idea to do that so, uh, you know, in order to go back to your child to go back to school, they have to be tested negative? I mean, I, mean, I, I think the, uh, in, in, in the setting where you have limited, limited resources, that's probably less, uh, less beneficial than, than, the, than the nursing homes. I mean, I think you'd have to think carefully about this. Contact tracing, um, I mean, it's a very effective policy when the number of infections are very, very low. And you can sort of identify them, spread out, quarantine. Um, but when the number of infections are really high, and when you have tests that, uh, that, that, that aren't always you know, 100% accurate or you know, close to you know, accurate most of the time, uh, I mean, you can, you can take costs. So like if something, say, you're, say you're falsely, you know, false, there's a false positive test, and now you can't work for 14 days in a context where everyone else is working. Even though it's, and even though you're not actually positive, mm -hmm. that's actually likely to be true in a low prevalence environment, um, which is you know I think, which is true in most of the country except for except for maybe New York. He is doctor. So, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. I think I think contact tracing could be a tool to be used, but it, it can't be. I don't think a universal contact tracing kind of regimen makes sense. He is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University, research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research, senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, and at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Dr. Mark Siegel, he's a clinical professor of medicine and medical director of Dr. Radio at NYU Lagone Health, and he's also a medical correspondent for Fox News, writing in the Wall Street Journal. The science on wearing masks as a protective piece of equipment is inconclusive, probably doesn't provide much protection. It's generally understood that the surgical and cloth masks offer little or no protection to the wearer. The purpose of the mandates is to protect others by ensuring the covering of the face of anyone who is infected. One study published in Nature Medicine in April found that wearing a surgical mask did decrease the spread of genetic material from respiratory viruses, including coronaviruses and that um, face masks could be used by ill people to reduce onward transmission. Yet another April study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine revealed that the, the force of sick patients' coughs propelled droplets through both surgical masks as well as cloth masks. And here, again, we're just talking about sick people wearing face masks. What about asymptomatic patients? This is the basis that, in which the CDC revised its mask recommendation because they found that uh, asymptomatic spread was more common than thought, but there have been no studies of masks' effectiveness in preventing it. And uh, we know, as we've talked before, that there are, in addition to cloth and surgical masks being virtually irrelevant in terms of stopping the spread of transmission, you have um, the issues of things like making sure that an N95 mask, even the respirator mask, making sure that they are form-fitted, making sure they're tested so there isn't leakage. Mark Siegel concludes, wear a mask if you must, but vigilant handwashing and social distancing will protect you much better. Others have argued uh, much more strongly than that, including neurosurgeon Russell Blaylock, 
I believe we mentioned yesterday, who points out the actual negative health effects that can occur by wearing masks uh, from headaches to increased airway resistance to carbon dioxide accumulation to hypoxia, all the way to serious life-threatening complications. But yet this is, as uh, Heather McDonald writes at City Journal, the outdoor mask is the most potent symbol of safetyism's current grip over the American psyche, which is why the media is so obsessed with Trump's refusal to cover himself in public. And while the rest of us must be broken to the discipline of the mask for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Heather McDonald. She is the Thomas W. Smith fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal and a New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Dan. So I, I'm not you know, ideological about the masks, but I, I do try to be scientific about all these discussions. And it just seems like there's no interest in certain quarters of having an intelligent discussion about whether there's any scientific basis for some of the guidelines or requirements that have been put in place, as opposed to just participating in a theatrical performance of Stop the Spread. Well, my big gripe, Dan, is the outdoor mask wearing. I'm agnostic about indoors. What we do know is that even without masks, transmission outdoors, infection outdoors, is virtually non-existent. If you're in a large, wide-open space with plenty of air circulating and you're walking fast by somebody, whether you're a foot away or six feet away, there is not a chance that you are going to infect that person. Infection depends on dose rates, and that is based on length of exposure and amount of exposure. The CDC is continuing to undermine its own advice because the guidelines it set out for doing contact tracing, this is when somebody is identified as infectious and the authorities try to find out who that person has been in contact with over the last two weeks in order to determine if if that person's contacts are also sick. The CDC is only interested in reaching out to individuals who have been a minimum of 15 minutes in the presence of the infected person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you're out in a park and you're running or race walking or whatever or, or cycling and you pass somebody or on a sidewalk and you pass somebody in a millisecond, again, zero chance of infection. Why do the authorities want to break us to the discipline of the mask? And here in New York City where I am in Manhattan, the caseload has gone way down, death rates have gone way down in inverse proportion to the extent of mask wearing. I estimate just eyeballing 98% of people here in New York on sidewalks are wearing masks, including in Central Park, including cyclists, including runners at 5.30 in the morning when there is nobody around. Everybody's wearing masks. Why? Because they are a visible symbol that the world has changed and that we are all under alleged threat. And that's why it is so important for the authorities to get everybody out there wearing these masks because it means that even though they can't be blaring their hysterical safetyist messages at us 24 hours a day, visually those messages are being enforced. I want to uh, pick up on this word that you're using, safetyism, develop that a little bit more as well as uh, underscore the hypocrisy associated with the positions the safetyists are taking. More with Heather McDonald, New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture, right after this. You can do magic. You can have anything. 
listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Heather McDonald. She is a contributing editor at City Journal and a New York Times bestselling author of, most recently, The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. And we were talking about this ideology, I guess, that you're describing called safetyism and the safetyists that are out there in New York City, but certainly not limited to New York City. Their hypocrisy, too. Um, and you use the occasion of the reaction to President Trump's event with the World War II veterans on VE Day as a way to sort of provide tangible evidence of the hypocrisy of which I'm referencing. Well, everybody beat up on Trump for not wearing a mask outdoors. This was at the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C., Windy Day. Trump was not wearing a mask, and beforehand, MSNBC, the New York Times were all raising an alarm that, oh my gosh, Trump is asking these 98-year-old veterans to come to visit and commemorate the liberation of Europe from Nazi Germany, and he's not wearing a mask, he's putting them at risk, which he's not. You know, again, outdoor transmission zero. The veterans themselves were not wearing masks, and Trump was also criticized for having extended an invitation to them at all. Well, the safetyist ethic, which comes out of the universities, I mean, we all heard about safe spaces, right, in the last five years, Mm. based on the preposterous conceit that college students are literally at risk of their lives on college campuses from circumambient racism and sexism, and you had a growth of an enormous wellness bureaucracy, what I call the college woke spa in a current article in City Journal, to say that, again, risk is everywhere, threat is everywhere, and you need bureaucrats to keep you safe and well. That ideology has now sprung out of the university, is in the world at large, and it holds that there is nothing in life more important. The the highest value is minimizing risk down to zero. Well, guess what? For these World War II veterans, the safetyist ethic would say, don't get on an airplane, don't travel, lock yourself up in home, do not celebrate the victory that you accomplished, do not honor the sacrifices of your fallen comrades. Those 98-year-old veterans would have responded, I support my country, I believe in the military virtues of honor, courage, and valor, and it is more important to me that I go to what is going to be the last chance of my life to honor my country and my fellow soldiers than stay locked at home. And what we're seeing now is the feminization, not just of the university, but of our culture, that refuses to acknowledge that there are values that transcend maximal personal safety, that are values of the country at large, and of certain male virtues that have given us civilization. It seems like uh, the only sacrifices acceptable to the safetyists are sacrificing our freedoms, and it couldn't be a starker contrast to uh, those men assembled with President Trump who sacrificed in defense of our freedom. Big distinction culturally. The safetyist ethic would mean there is no more war. Now, that's a good thing. I'm not defending war. But the military virtues that said, give me liberty or give me death, that said there are certain things that are worth laying your life on the line for, 
to defend individual rights against a tyrant. The safetyist ethic would say that is never acceptable. There is nothing greater than minimizing your personal risk. And so we become atomized. There is nothing greater than the self to sacrifice oneself for. And we have, again, a feminized ethos which says that it's risk averse, it sees threat everywhere, it sees fear everywhere, the psychology has long known among its five big five personality traits, the trait that is called neuroticism, which is a risk aversion and unwillingness to assume risk, a worry, a heightened sense of worry. That is overwhelmingly a female characteristic. And we're seeing that now. You had the New York Times recently celebrating the fact that male politicians are now crying in public. And the Times came out right out and said that <laughs> the values that are now in the ascendant, are female values. Well, I want to go to the piece you referenced at City Journal, the therapeutic campus, because, boy, uh, we forget how bad things were before the pandemic. God only knows what is going to come after this as we see what's happening during it. And you uh, highlight the Good Life Center on the campus of Yale University. Develop that for us. Well, it's just an amazing place. It has a sandbox. It has essential oils. It has massage therapy. I call it the college woke spa because you're in there and you think, am I in Beverly Hills? Am I in a place for trophy wives to come and do their yoga and mindfulness sessions? It's plastered with these mindless Hallmark card bromides uh, that are, again, very feminine you go, girl, you know, you're beautiful, you're smart, you're fantastic. These are little written signals, signs all over the place. We're supposed to believe that Yale students are so non-ironic that they read these messages that are written to nobody in particular and think it refers to them and therefore feel greater self-esteem. Their library consists of self-help books on how to achieve happiness. I actually attended Yale the library to me consisted of the stacks in Sterling Library where I found treasures, things like a journal brought out in 1920s Germany by, for two years by Walter Benjamin, one of the great early 20th century philosophers and social critics, that somebody had the foresight to collect. You know, early works of John Milton. That is what a library should be, not the library in the Good Life Center at Yale, which looks like what you'd find in an airport inspirational reading section. And so again, this is what we see happening, that the wellness crusade in many, many colleges now have the same rhetoric of mindfulness sessions, make your own tea, yoga, massage therapy, and of course the ubiquitous petting dogs for stress. We hear that there's this crisis of mental health on college campuses, that too is overwhelmingly female. Students are being taught to think of themselves as vulnerable. They happily assume that role, and they are bringing it into the world at large. I mean, it's remarkable. The, the Good Life Center at Yale, the description you provide in your piece at City Journal, is it's it really is remarkable. And again, this is pre-pandemic, and thinking about all the anxiety that uh, will be self-imposed coming out of this. Heather McDonald, Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal, and the New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Take care. If you leave, I won't cry. I won't
listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show in my hometown of Chicago. The uh, triple threat uh, mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. Uh, for those you know, don't know the colloquialisms here, at least the ones I've created. Triple threat is uh, how Lori Lightfoot described herself when she ran for mayor of Chicago. She was a candidate. She said, I'm black. I'm female. I'm a lesbian. I'm the triple threat. So she's called herself that. I've just taken a liking to it. And that's how I reference her since she is the poster child for. And I do mean since she's child size poster child for and, and her behavior, childlike tantrum poster child for identitarian politics. She uh, brought in a noted uh, policy advisor. You may remember him from uh, being a top economic advisor to Hugo Chavez. Apparently, he is an actor of some renown as well. Sean Penn. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, I don't know him much uh, from his acting, more from his uh, good work as a uh, documentarian of El Chapo, as well as, again, an advisor to Hugo Chavez, the dictator there in Venezuela, the economic miracle he pulled off, as I understand it from Bernie Sanders, at least. Sean Penn uh, had this to say, some advice and counsel to Chicagoans about how to reopen an economy. The motto that I go by, it's the same thing I think of just as a citizen with my own opinions that I'll, I'll not register right this moment. But, but again, when it comes to opening economies, slow is, is smooth, smooth is fast, and blood is slippery. Uh, and we don't want to get a, get a finger uh, slipping on a hot trigger. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, again, penonomics, if you're uh, trying to follow at home, maybe a plot where the supply and demand curves intersect based on the recommendation you just heard. Slow is smooth. Smooth is fast and blood is slippery. And you don't want to put your finger on a hot trigger. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast and blood is slippery. You don't want to put your finger on a hot trigger. Uh, It's profound. I mean, I I felt like as I was watching his remarks, uh, watching an episode of Milton Friedman's Free to Choose series. uh, This is not uh, unfamiliar territory as Sean Penn has contributed to. Uh, our understanding of the human condition previously, as you know. Mr. Spicoli, you're on dangerous ground here. You're causing a major disturbance on my time. <laughs> I've been thinking about this, Mr. Han. If I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? Longtime three-dimensional thinker, Sean Penn. Uh, if you don't want to watch Sean Penn or his movies, even Fast Times at Richmond High, I've got a recommendation for you. No Safe Spaces. This is the number one political documentary of 2019. The effort of our friend Dennis Prager to Adam Carolla to document the attack on free speech in Hollywood, on social media platforms, on college campuses, of course, and also to provide some uh, instruction on what you can do to join the fight for free minds and free speech in a free America. No Safe Spaces is available for a limited time only to uh, stream at nosafespaces.com. And for Dan Prof listeners, use the discount code SAFE25, SAFE25. And you get 25% off No Safe Spaces, which you stream at nosafespaces.com as many times as you want until May 31st. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. I mean, um, Werner Wilhelm, you know, the mayor of New York City, this guy is really something. No one has been more over the top in constricting religious liberty I mean, with verve than uh, Bill de Blasio, a.k.a. Werner Wilhelm. Uh, tweeting out yesterday, earlier today, the NYPD shut down a yeshiva conducting classes with as many as 70 children. I can't stress how dangerous this is for our young people. We're issuing a cease and desist order and we'll make sure we keep our communities and our kids safe because the Jewish families and the uh, operators of that uh, school uh, teachers of those classes, they're not interested in that, I see. Seth Mandel tweeting out in response, one day it'll be legal again to study the Torah in New York City. Today's just not that day. Uh, I, that's my parenthetical addition, but, but um, I mean, his sarcasm is noted. It, it, this is a guy who said, shut your synagogues down now or we'll shut them down permanently. And uh, courts around the country uh, have uh, decided cases of challenges on behalf of religious liberty in uh, in all directions. Um, federal district courts in California and New Mexico have reject challenges and ruled that uh, some of the bans on worship services are constitutional. Federal courts in Kansas and Kentucky have gone the other way, say the bans do violate the First Amendment. Uh, and the Sixth Court, as we mentioned uh, Yesterday, over the weekend, agreed holding that Kentucky's ban on church services violates the free exercise clause. Uh, You even had a county judge in Oregon suggest that uh, churches have suffered irreparable damage, irreparable harm from the emergency orders in place by the Dem Socialist governor there and uh, overturned the restrictions on religious gatherings there, but sort of under a nuanced holding that pointed out that the governor's emergency order had expired. She needs legislative approval to extend it. And so for now, religious services can go forward in Oregon. So as I say, mixed bag. Uh, for uh, more on this uh, from the religious perspective um, and uh, across the way in Asia, Russia, uh, the outbreak in COVID-19 in Russia has been described as the next Chernobyl, noting this. Imagine the um, Putinists being less than forthright with the world. As of May 8th, nearly 188,000 Russians have officially contracted the coronavirus and 1,723 have died. However, the day before, Moscow, the mayor, said that the COVID infections in Moscow alone were 300,000. So we got to... Uh, who's keeping track of uh, what page all the propagandists are supposed to be on? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Johnson, president of the Slavic Gospel Association. Michael, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, so uh, you, we have some perspective on on religious liberty in this country, as we were discussing. But give us your perspective on the case that is Russia. Well, in the case of Russia, just quickly on our ministry, our ministry was established in Chicago in 1934, and we ministered to uh, the Russian churches and Christians throughout those countries uh, who for many years were persecuted and many hauled off to the prison camps in Siberia and, and uh, killed for their faith. Right. So uh, with regard to this particular situation, uh, you mentioned some statistics, and the numbers are just all over the map. Uh, but uh, we, we, we serve 10 countries of the former Soviet Union plus Israel, and right now we're looking at a total of reported cases of roughly 385,000, with 290,000 of those being in Russia, and uh, roughly 3,900 people who have lost their lives, which represents about 1% of the total cases. So, um, so the, the, the situation in there, with regard to the Christians, um, we we basically we serve the churches in those countries, um, and we're connected to a network of roughly 6,350 evangelical churches in those countries. And every one of those churches are doing everything they can to try to meet both the physical and the spiritual needs of the people uh, in their nations in many of the cities, towns, and villages. Well, what, what, what's the what's the sense of the underreporting though that is occurring? Scale of it. Well, well, the underreporting. You mentioned Chernobyl, and uh, certainly uh, when the Chernobyl nuclear disaster took place in 1986, uh, there was uh, certainly certainly there were attempts to um, withhold information about what was really going on. And I think that there is some level of skepticism about the numbers that are being reported in many of those countries. Um, we saw certain situations in Belarus where that was the case, and uh, uh, but where the people that we're working with, these are the people who are in fact on the ground throughout those countries who are trying to deal with um, you know the people who have been infected by it. But the biggest issue is the crash of the economies, and people are really struggling there right now. Because well, uh, well, the- well, just to interrupt, but in Belarus, that's where you had President Lukashenko uh, say. Uh, vodka and saunas uh, as a cure for the coronavirus. So I'm not surprised to hear there's perhaps some underreporting going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, yeah, we've been following that, and that's an unfortunate set of circumstances. But we are hearing, we're getting a number of reports of individuals who have, in fact, been affected by uh, by the virus. And in certain cases, people have lost their lives. Uh, so um, there's there's a bit of a difference between what the president is saying and what we are hearing on the ground in that country. Is there any indication that uh, the authoritarian government there, uh, Putin and his government are persecuting uh, Christians, uh, Christian places of worship? Um, there's been there's been some level of growth in that. There's been some level of harassment and fines that have been po- imposed on churches for a variety of reasons. Um uh, and I think that as time goes on, that that will continue to grow. Uh, certainly in the Central Asian countries, they're heavily Muslim-dominated. Uh, we're seeing a lot of that. Um, but in this situation, um, the churches are, for the most part, they're they're pretty much free to to go into their areas and find identify the people who are really struggling, who need help, and then uh, provide some aid to them uh, in their time of distress. But so it's it's a matter of they're sort of just being left to their own devices, whether it's the state run orphanages or the churches 
Um, there's uh, no help from government coming uh, for these individuals. So the church is trying to fill the role as best churches are trying to fill the roles as, as best they can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the help from the government has been diminished because of the crash in the economy. And as you know, in Russia, the, the, you know, the primary source of, of uh, revenue is uh, fossil fuels. And with the crash of the oil prices, it's been, it's been really, it's been a real struggle in Russia as well as their surrounding countries. And, and this is, uh, uh, yeah, right, you mentioned surrounding countries, too. I mean, it, we're, we don't really have a handle, it seems, on what's happening in some eastern, former eastern bloc countries because there was a move to lockdown very quickly, uh, at least a lot of the reporting goes, suggesting that those countries knew their healthcare systems couldn't withstand any real demand on services, so they shut everything down. But that doesn't that's that's a delay tactic. That doesn't also necessarily mean you won't ultimately have an outbreak and thus have a real humanitarian and medical crisis in some of these countries. I think that's a pretty accurate uh, description of what's going on there. Um, uh, you know, the medical infrastructure in those countries, uh, they really they're not set up to handle um, the onslaught of what's about to happen, because in those countries, they're about three to four weeks behind us in terms of the onset. So. Um, uh, so it's only going to get worse in those countries, and uh, and as you point out, there the medical infrastructure is really not equipped to handle it. And while you know, while 385,000 cases uh, across the 10 countries, including Israel, is not a huge number, um, when you're looking at 290,000 cases in Russia, they're just not equipped to handle it. So it's 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 a bit of a struggle right now. And there's people are are sitting in ambulances uh, for at least a couple of days before they can get in to be treated uh, in certain areas. Um, So between that and the economy, it's just going to continue to get worse. And that's why Michael Johnson and the Slavic Gospel Association have launched their Christ over COVID, Much Prayer, Much Power campaign, global campaign, calling for American Christians to pray, and we certainly will. Michael Johnson, president of the Slavic Gospel Association, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Dr. Scott Atlas, who is the former chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center, has another good piece at The Hill, thehill.com. And uh, forget even what he says about medicine. Uh, There's no medical expertise needed to make this observation. In the U.S. alone, 152,000 new cancer cases arise every month among patients, and most have not been seen. Of the 650,000 U.S. cancer patients receiving chemotherapy, an estimated half are missing their treatments. Half. Half of urgent care patients are not seeking medical attention. Two-thirds of physical therapy is not being administered. 
transplants from living donors are down almost 85%. Emergency stroke evaluations are down 40%, and that doesn't include two-thirds to three-fourths of people who are skipping cancer screenings and more than half of the children who are failing to receive vaccinations. Uh, what does that to portend for the future of their of the conditions of so many and thus our general public health in America? Here's the real failure, writes Dr. Atlas. Public policy must never be one dimensional. It's, it's axiomatic, but uh, you wouldn't know it. When you have one dimensional thinkers making one dimensional arguments, you get one dimensional policies. And that's what the lockdown and bust has been, hasn't it? For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Bradley Thomas. He's a libertarian activist and writer, published at the Mises Institute, the Libertarian Institute, and AustroLibertarian.com, as well as the Foundation for Economic Education. Bradley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Dan. I I, uh, saw a testimony this morning from... uh, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary before Senate Committee on uh, the topic of the so-called CARES Act that was advanced by Pelosi and House Democrats. And uh, Sherrod Brown, who's a senator from Ohio, uh, put the question to Mnuchin, you know, how many lives are you willing to sacrifice to uh, increase the national GDP by five tenths of a point? And uh, that sort of... uh, uh, straw man questioning. You have a wonderful response to it in a piece that you wrote at Mises.org. How many lives are you willing to sacrifice to prevent one coronavirus death? That should be put to Sherrod Brown and so many, shouldn't it? Right. Absolutely right. And it, it's really doing a great disservice to the debate over this lockdown and the response to the coronavirus. When we try to boil it down just to simply a, a trade-off between public health and saving lives, versus uh, an economic blip on on Wall Street or a few ticks up on uh, on the stock market. And the trade-off is really far more nuanced and more more complex than that. It's really uh, saving lives versus saving lives. Uh, The lockdown itself, as you were alluding to here in the lead-up, the lockdown itself is leading to public health problems. It's leading to more deaths as a result of the lockdown. For example, one recent report uh, talked about uh, deaths of despair. And as a result of this lockdown, the U.S. might see a surge of about 75,000 of those types of deaths of despair resulting from uh, unemployment and the depression from unemployment and and anxiety and uh, the uh, uh, um, drug uh, substance abuse uh, deaths as well as suicide is going to result from this ongoing lockdown. The longer this lockdown goes, the more of those types of deaths and uh, um, yeah. uh, public health issues are going to persist. Well, right. That was the well-being trust study, which we covered on this show. That's exactly right. And it's something else that's uh, noteworthy. I find all of these individuals, particularly the politicians who uh, fancy themselves citizens of the world and uh, are uh, blithely pursuing these uh, lockdown policies and promoting hysteria, that is endangering literally, literally millions of people the world over who rely on programs like the U.N. A global food program uh, in order not to starve to death. And supply webs have been disrupted and resources uh, are lacking. Uh, the logistics are now more complicated than ever. And you have and uh, we were talking about this with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford last hour. You have the prospect of tens of millions of people starving to death the world over in the coming months. And, and I mean, near term. Right. Absolutely. I mean, this is the onset of not just 
a, a economic collapse here in the United States, but uh, internationally as well. And there's so many third world countries that are in a position where they're already teetering on the brink of starvation and having so many uh, other health issues. Uh, the onset of this can trigger something far more catastrophic. Uh, and, and a lot of debate you see and people have snarky responses on social media and so forth saying that if you want to reopen the economy, it's just because you're selfish and you want to go to Applebee's or get your hair cut. But it's far more serious than that. And certainly globally, when we're looking at, again, specifically, say, third world countries, there was a, uh, not that long ago, there was a, uh, uh, an article highlighting a United Nations report warning that these kind of economic hardships experienced by families as a result of this global economic downturn could result in hundreds of thousands of additional child deaths in this year alone. Uh, so the, the, the ramifications of this are far more serious than I think the, the advocates wanting this lockdown to continue are willing to admit. And, and it just starts from, uh, you know, it's a sort of the, the junk in, junk out is the handle on bad models or models that don't have the predictive value that uh, some thought they might. It's sort of the same thing with some of the uh, lines of thinking and argumentation. You start from false premises, you get false conclusions. And the false premises that uh, we have... Um, the false premise is that we don't live in a world of scarcity, that we don't live in a world of trade-offs, that there's no such thing as opportunity cost, one policy versus another. Right. And it, it, it's an absolute shame that nobody in the media is really calling attention to these more significant trade-offs and confronting the political leaders, the governors who are extending these lockdowns and trying to uh, enforce these measures. No one is asking them, well, what about those trade-offs, not just uh, opening the economy versus saving lives, but the lives that are being cost because we are extending this lockdown to try to prevent more coronavirus deaths. You know, as we mentioned at the at the opening, you know, how many lives are you willing to sacrifice to prevent one coronavirus death? I mean, I just once I would like to see a reporter at a press conference ask one of our uh, uh, governors that question. So would I. And uh, I'll tell you what, I um, this is sort of a, 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 a important time for uh, libertarians, uh, libertarians generally, civil libertarians specifically, because, you know, so sort of dismiss the things, the infringement on rights that you're talking about could never happen here. Concerns about overarching government, concerns about constitutional rights being abridged, you know, that that could happen in in Eastern Bloc countries, but that would never happen in America. Well, now people are realizing that in the right set of circumstances, if you generate enough fear, if you have a, a real threat, but you generate outsized fear, those things can absolutely happen in America because they're happening. Yeah, and, and don't think the politicians are not taking notice of this. Like you're saying, generate enough fear and just look at what people are willing to accept. He is Bradley Thomas, libertarian activist and writer, published at the Mises Institute, the Libertarian Institute, AustroLibertarian.com, and the Foundation for Economic Education. Bradley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We didn't get to this yesterday, but I wanted to uh, cover the remarks that Attorney General William Barr made at the press conference that was uh, focused on detailing the information that the Department of Justice had uh, put together connecting the Pensacola Naval Station shooter to Al-Qaeda. But he uh, took the time to remark upon the Durham investigation on the Department of Justice and the standard of conduct, the new standard of conduct at the Department of Justice and by extension the FBI as compared to what it had been under the previous administration and uh, to sort of reset the table against the backdrop of all all of this fighting over the dropping of charges against uh, General Flynn, uh, as well as to opine on the targets from the general knowledge he has of the Durham investigation, the targets of that criminal investigation. Uh, Let's start with his uh, general review of what had happened and what is no longer going to happen at DOJ. The criminal justice system will not be used for uh, partisan political ends. And this is especially true uh, for the upcoming elections in in November. We live in a very divided country right now, and I think that it is critical that we have an election where the American people are allowed to make a decision, a choice between President Trump and Vice President Biden based on a robust debate of policy issues. And we cannot allow this process to be hijacked by efforts to drum up criminal investigations uh, of either candidate. And I'm committed that this election will be conducted without this kind of interference. Any effort to pursue an investigation of either candidate has to be approved by me. Now, what happened to the president, and I've said this many times, what happened to the president in the 2016 election and throughout the first two years of his administration was abhorrent. It was a grave injustice, and it was unprecedented in American history. The law enforcement and intelligence apparatus of this country were involved in advancing a false and utterly baseless Russian collusion narrative against the president. The proper investigative and prosecutive standards of the Department of Justice were abused, in my view, in order to reach a particular result. We saw two different standards of justice emerge, one that applied to President Trump and his associates, and the other that applied to everybody else. We can't allow this ever to happen again. It's uh, such an important statement because, uh, of course, the accusations are that it's uh, Barr, not the previous administration, who is politicizing justice and setting two standards of justice. And there's just no evidence to support that any more than there was evidence to support the Russian collusion gambit investigation, as well as all of the propagandizing on cable news networks for the past three years. And it continues, by the way, which I'll get to in a moment. But it's 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 got to be tempting, even for a, a man who is principled and takes the canons seriously, like Bill Barr, to be a vigilante attorney general, to uh, have a vigilante Department of Justice to impress upon the other side how little they would like it if what happened to people they like, I should say, if what happened to President Trump, as Bill Barr described, happened to people they like. But he's not going to do that because he guards jealously, as we as conservatives always should and originalists always should, who we are. We could be them, meaning the ends justify the means leftists, the Alinskyites. They cannot be us. No tit for tat. But this cannot be and it will not be a tit for tat exercise. We are not going to lower the standards just to achieve a result. 
The only way to stop this vicious cycle, the only way to break away from a dual system of justice is to make sure that we scrupulously apply the single and proper standard of justice for everybody. Barr went on to say neither Obama nor Biden are targets of any criminal investigation or are likely to be, according to his general understanding of the Durham investigation, which uh, has been projected to be maybe a month or two away from completion. So we'll see. And that's fine. I tell you what, history, uh, when people look back on this, when Trump is gone, they're going to look back at Bill Barr and say, thank goodness Bill Barr decided to right the ship when it came to the Department of Justice's operation, by extension, the FBI's operation, to reestablish the rule of law, to reestablish one standard of justice in protection of our individual rights as enshrined in the Constitution. They're going to be like, you know what, I really didn't like Trump, but I have to uh, provide begrudging respect to Bill Barr. At least the honest ones will. And by the way, what are Democrats doing? As John Solomon reports at JustTheNews.com, they uh, made a filing with the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday saying new articles of impeachment could be filed against President Trump if they're able to review documents from special counsel Bob Mueller's Russia probe. They're looking at uh, the possible exercise of improper political influence over the recent decisions made in the Roger Stone and Michael Flynn prosecutions, both initiated by the special counsel. So you can look forward to more of this skullduggery and demagoguery in Trump's second term. This is the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show with uh, the Ava Perone of East Lansing now beginning to relax the lockdown in Michigan, northern Michigan to be specific. My home state governor, King J.B. of House Pritzker, is beginning to stand alone to the extent that he can stand up under his own weight. And I mean that literally as the most draconian committed lockdown in bust governor in the country uh, who uh, is complimented by arguably, perhaps with Eric Garcetti in L.A., the most lockdown and bust committed mayor in Lori Lightfoot. And uh, this is a story that should get some national attention. And since um, I do a morning show in Chicago, but I have this little syndicated opportunity, I figured I'd raise the profile of my morning show co-host because it's an issue that if it were to occur at the national level, like it did actually with Jim Acosta and CNN, you would have the fourth estate falling all over themselves in outrage over someone being expelled from a journalistic pool, not being able to ask questions of the principal. And that's what happened to my broadcast partner on Chicago's Morning Answer on the Salem station in Chicago, Amy Jacobson, who had spent the last 30 days as one of the pool reporters asking questions of both Governor Pritzker during his press conferences, press briefings, as well as the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, during hers. But on Saturday... Amy participated in the reopen rally that took place in Chicago with a couple of thousand people. And she made remarks uh, opposed to some of the policies that have been pursued by both the governor and the mayor, closing Chicago's lakefront and not allowing businesses to open, even in counties where there have been very few cases and few, if any, deaths and so forth. The usual stuff you've heard from other places in the country. She uh, was rebuked by the all of the poobahs of the Chicago press corps 
who fancy themselves objective scriveners of the news of the day rather than partisan propagandists that they actually are. In point of fact, a few years ago, a newspaper group I'm part of did a look-see at the voting records of uh, about six dozen of the top reporters in the Chicago and Illinois political press corps. Almost 90 percent of them consistent Democrat primary voters. Of course, no surprise, but it's evidence to support the claim that, look, you have 90 percent of a group come from one perspective. You don't think that informs the news they choose to cover and how they choose to cover it. You don't think the coverage of politics in Illinois and the same thing goes at the federal level with Trump. You don't think it would be different if 90 percent of the journalistic pool were consistent Republican primary voters. The stories wouldn't be different. The way they're covered wouldn't be different. The idea that these superhuman, impartial, objective journalists is the big lie that the press corps, both the D.C. one and its you know, minor league versions in places like Chicago, tell to try to establish some legitimacy for what they do, which is really serve as the handmaidens for the big government political class, of course. Well, so Amy participated in this rally and, you know, there were some unfortunate choices made by a few people of 2000 people at the rally. You know, the typical thing you would see going in either direction, anti-Trump rallies where you have Trump with a Hitler mustache calling him, you know, Hitlerian. Same thing with Pritzker with a Hitler mustache suggesting he's a national socialist. You know, he's just a Democrat socialist. But, you know, the, the, the people who think Godwin's law is an actual law that you have to abide when the issue is public discussion or discussion on social media, it's it's absurd. It's unhelpful. But it's also not uh, Amy's problem. Well, she got a email from the spokesperson for Governor Pritzker that said the following. This weekend, you attended and spoke at a political rally to fire up the crowd opposing the governor's policies to combat COVID-19. That rally was attended by people holding hateful Nazi imagery. An impartial journalist would not have attended the rally in that capacity. and Therefore, you will no longer be invited to participate as an impartial journalist. As a former journalist myself, I have the utmost respect for journalists who do the tough work to hold public officials accountable while preserving the unbiased coverage we all rely on. Jordan Abadaya, who is the press secretary for Pritzker. I mean, there is so much pablum strung together in those two paragraphs. I've already sort of covered the phony baloney, impartial and unbiased characterization. It's interesting. She said you attended and spoke at a political rally to fire up the crowd opposing the governor's policy. So it's OK to have an opinion. You just can't have the wrong opinion. Otherwise, why would you mention her view? It was it was her participation, not her opinion. Right. The rally was attended by people holding hateful Nazi imagery. I see. I told you what it was. It was people comparing Pritzker to Hitler. They don't like Pritzker and they don't like Hitler. Thus, the comparison. It wasn't anti-Semitic. It was anti-Pritzker. It was unfortunate. It was unhelpful. I've advocated against the use of those type of images for years, frankly, but also recently with these rallies. But it's also a couple of people out of 2000. So the standard now is that any speaker at any event is responsible for the expressions of everyone who attends that event. That's absurd. Of course, that's absurd. J.B. Pritzker couldn't abide that standard. Nobody could. You have one offs at every sort of uh, mass gathering. You can't control what people say or do. You can control what you say and do. So, of course, it's an unrealistic standard because they, here's the point. They know they're gatekeepers. They know they have the supermajority position. They know they can they have to sort of tolerate squeaky wheels who are providing cognitive dissonance right up until they can find a thinly veiled predicate to 
exile them. And so where are all those people who were offended, oh, outraged, authoritarian? Uh, he's uh, eliminating uh, press access when Jim Acosta got his press credentials stripped. Where are they now? Because uh, this was the, the hue and cry was coming from Chicago as well as every other left-wing bastion around the country. So where are these people now when it comes to my partner, Amy Jacobson? It's also a reminder of what conservatives have failed to do and why you have big cities that have failed under the blue governance model, the Democrat socialist governance model, persist under that model and with functionaries of the same philosophy. We abdicated K-12 through education. We abdicated media, largely. We abdicated cultural institutions that drive people's understanding of things. And so you can go from cradle to grave and, by and large, have to avoid viewpoints that haven't been inculcated in you starting in pre-K by teachers and public schools or mainly left of center, reinforced by media, reinforced by all the cultural institutions, uh, entertainment through the arts. And then you have uh, the silencing of those who provide any opposition, who have unpopular opinions. This is the whole No Safe Spaces movie that Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla did, isn't it? But it's certainly not limited to college campuses and social media platforms and Hollywood. We're all on one big college campus now, as Andrew Sullivan wrote in New York Magazine many months ago, and we are. And Amy Jacobson is the latest casualty of that. And hopefully some of our friends that have more national profile than I do will pick up the story. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, first, the Dutch gave us tulip mania in the 1600s. And uh, now they give us this. Dutch singles encouraged to find dedicated lockdown sex partners. <laughs> I mean, this is not dissimilar, I guess, from the uh, guidelines that were promulgated by the New York City Department of Health at the outset of the shutdowns. But uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, the... Uh, Official guidelines from the Dutch National Institute for Public Health suggesting single people strike up a friends with benefit or benefits arrangement for the duration of the lockdown. So reported the BBC uh, quoting from their guidelines, for example, meet the same person to have physical, physical or sexual contact, for example, and they use these terms, a cuddle buddy or sex buddy, provided you are free of illness, make good arrangements with this person about how many other people you'll you both see the more people you see the greater chance of spreading coronavirus right that's the only issue with this is the spread of coronavirus everything is coronavirus centric there's not there's no other considerations um uh, questions risk assessments to be done the guidelines encourage singles not to write off the benefits of sex with yourself or with others at a distance as well <laughs> oh the dutch uh under the uh Netherlands, quote unquote, intelligent lockdown. Talk about an oxymoron Orwellian in nature. Citizens have been allowed three visitors into their homes at any given time, provided they remain 1.5 meters apart. And who enforces that? But the government sanctioned uh, cuddle buddy clause was added after it occurred to officials that it makes sense that as a single person, you also want to have physical contact. It's interesting to note that there's no guidance for married couples. 
with respect to physical contact. Perhaps that's where the guidance is needed the most. I don't know. I wouldn't know why Dan Proft is single. Uh, so we appreciate the Dutch's contribution to uh, 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 trying to mitigate uh, deaths of despair uh, per social isolation at government's hands. Uh, as I mentioned uh, before, that uh, little cuddle buddy segment uh, when I was talking about uh, the issue of the governor and my broadcast partner in Chicago being banned by the governor from the press pool. This is what we're talking about. This is what Dennis Prager and Adam Kroll are talking about in No Safe Spaces, their number one political documentary of 2019, which is now available to watch at nosafespaces.com. For my listeners, use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces. That uh, one price allows you to watch as many times as you want until May 31st. Find out what you can do to support the efforts of uh, others to advance free thinking and free speaking in a free America. Watch No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. Thank you again for joining us on another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Hopefully you were informed and entertained, and hopefully you will do so again tomorrow. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.